0: Father, we are going to do something today that is very important and very significant. And we ask for a special blessing of your spirit to guide us and to lead us through the chapter that we're going to read and that we're going to study and think about. I pray that uh, you will give us clear minds and the ability to think clearly and most of all the presence of your spirit to make this real, to make it understandable, and to make it something we can apply to our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, handouts. The first thing you want is the Substitute King Ritual in Ancient Mesopotamia. It's the one with a lot of short lines. And the next one is the Suffering Servant and the Substitute King, a review of John H. Walton. And then uh, the final one is Points in Contrast Between the Suffering Servant and the Substitute King. So if we have those in order, we can quickly move on through them. All right, let's start with the text. And you have that here in front of you. You have two texts, actually. And then the back side, you have two texts again, only it's a different version. Uh, you have the NRSV on the back side, and the front side, you have the New King James Version. Uh, and, but on both sides, you have Brenton, which is the Septuagint Translation. The translation of the Septuagint text of Isaiah 53. And uh, we're going to just read Isaiah 53. There's, there's another portion of Isaiah 53, in, of this chapter, of this song in Isaiah 52, but they're not crucial verses, and so it's just easier to do chapter 53. So, Christina, would you please read the first paragraph on the left column?
1: Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him.
0: Okay. Tiffany.
1: Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for by our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. The transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his life.
0: Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he has put him to grief. When we take his soul an offering for sin, we shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This text has been used to promote a view of the atonement that's sometimes called the forensic model or the legal model in which Jesus dies as a penal substitute for our sins which is in the passage he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. And the way... It is expressed usually as that he died to satisfy the justice of God, but sometimes that's expressed more, I think more correctly, that he died to appease God's wrath. And, uh, of course, different theologians along the way have tweaked uh, how that is worded. John Stott prefers to say that God died or God and Jesus died uh, to appease his own wrath, so it's sort of like he he appeased his own wrath by by dying. The, a view of de- of Jesus' death like that is really very close to the concept of human sacrifice. In fact, I've had I had a student one time. I I asked the question on a test about the story of Isaac, the the binding of Isaac and And I asked them to unpack that in light of jesus' death, and I had taken them through the story and showed that it was opposed to human sacrifice to child sacrifice, and that it isn't about a father killing his son it's about a sinner offering the offering and doing the slaying of the innocent victim and uh, They were supposed to then comment on jesus' death and and they said, well, uh, <clears throat> the reason jesus wa- the reason we no longer have child sacrifice. God no longer requires child sacrifices because Jesus' death took care of that. So we've left an, a strong impression, I'm afraid, among people who, who make, connect the dots <laughs> that Jesus' death is a human sacrifice. And, and we're going to explore that via a, a scholar who purports that, who, who has reported that. Um, in terms of an ancient ritual that he thinks this text has to do with. But that is for just a moment. I want to show you some things about this text. Look at um, the first underlined uh, sentence. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded. And this is where we, we think there's substitution. I mean, most people think, take this to mean substitution. He was wounded for our transgressions. That does not make sense. Why would Jesus be a substitute for our transgressions? Those two things don't mix.
1: Because we're often told that he took sin upon himself, and so he became sin.
0: Right, and I believe the text teaches that, but how is that substitutionary? Because he took our sins. Because but it's not because he was wounded for our transgressions, and and the re- because a substitute is a direct equivalent. Transgressions don't need a substitute. Our transgressions don't need a substitute. We need the substitute, right? So I looked at the Hebrew on this, and the Hebrew has the word from. He was wounded from our transgressions, and I was like, "Oops, there goes substitution out of that passage." He was wounded by our transgressions. He was bruised by our iniquities. So I wanted to point this out. This is very crucial. Now, the Subtuagent translators couldn't understand how transgressions could wound anybody and bruise anybody. So they translated the men because of our transgressions. And that's permissible. Men can mean that. The men is the from. Sorry if I lapse into Hebrew (laughs) So it can mean that, but it can, it, the more natural meaning here is by. And let me show you why. I'm trying to find it here. This translation doesn't help me. Look, Turn over the page to the new Revised Standard Version, and we'll find it there. You can see, yet we accounted him stricken, st- stuck down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded by our transgressions, and so on. Now I'll jump down to the next paragraph, and close to the middle of that paragraph, it says, by a perversion of justice he was taken away. That word by is men. It's the same word as above. And you would not translate it for a perversion of justice. He was taken away. And you, and you, men, men M-I-N. You would not say because of a perver- well, you could say because of a perversion of justice, meaning, but that still means its source and its means. So I see this as, and, and it makes total sense if you take this in the context of the entire paragraph, so we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded by our transgressions. You see how natural that is. Now, we thought God did this to him, but it was really our sins that did this to him. That's what it's saying. And uh, the last line, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, meaning we really did. He really did bear our sins, and it's our sins that took his life. Now let's move, uh, well, look at the next underlined phrase. We The King James Version translates, for by the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. It's really by the transgressions of my people. So you have another by there. Now we come to the line that everybody uses to say, no, God really did this to him. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Doesn't that say God did it? And he even pleased was pleased to do it. I like to whack you. And then the forensic model, that works. Because if God's being appeased by the death of his son, then that works. But you need to know something about the infinitive. As in English, in Hebrew, the infinitive is a noun verb. And one way to translate this is the Lord's bruising what, it, it, okay, it, his bruising it pleased the Lord or something like that. That does not mean he did it. It simply means he, it means he willed it. If you look uh, at, over at the NRSV, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. So, it isn't about pleasure here. It's about will. It's about choice. So I looked this up in, uh, in in a very conservatively written syntax book on Hebrew. And they said emphatically that the infinitive is without reference to agency, meaning there's no cause in an infinitive. And that's because it's a noun verb. It simply means that God willed his bruising. It doesn't mean he caused it. And finally, he shall bear their iniquities. So this is clearly about Jesus being the sin bearer, and that is substitutionary. I have, I have no issue with substitution in this passage. I just have an issue with God being the one who causes the suffering of the suffering servant. And I also have an issue with penal substitution because penal substitution infers that God did the punishing.
1: Is there a deeper question that I need to ask you another time about the will? Because that says to me that even if he didn't do it, he still allowed it. Right. And he wanted it?
0: Yes. He wanted it. Yes. He wanted it. And and this is something I can't answer today. Okay. We will answer it when we get to Romans. Hopefully before summer. <laughs> so let's look at the Septuagint version. Yes.
1: But yet you don't hear Christ kicking and screaming all the way to the cross. No. So he was willful yeah. too, yeah. almost like... Submissive. Like I uh, yeah. said, take me, you know, use yeah. me, almost yeah. to the effect.
0: Yep. That's, that's because, well, let's let's look at one more line that will help to answer this. Look at the line on the, in the next to the last paragraph on this column uh, where it says, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And then it says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Now, what is justification by? What, what is it that enables God to justify? We say Jesus. Uh, in the forensic model, that means that Jesus justifies us because he satisfied the wrath of God. But here it says, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. By his knowledge. What knowledge did Jesus gain by bearing our sins that would allow him to justify us? Um,
1: Where it says in Hebrews that he experienced enough to be able to succor us. Okay. And also that on the larger realm, the first-hand knowledge of us as a people
0: in the sin issue for the universe. Okay, let's let's put that in more more direct terms. There's an issue out there about sin and whether sin really causes death. Isn't there? And that issue in Satan's mouth became an issue about God: is it God who causes death, or is it sin who causes death, that causes death? And by His knowledge about bearing our sins and what causes death, He's able to make many righteous. He's able to justify us. And and we're going to unpack that when we get to Romans, but I would like to refer you back to something that I'll give you at the end of class. And that's a handout, and I'll give it to you too, uh, a handout that we looked at in the terms of the blood, Uh the blood of Jesus and what it means. We concluded that the blood of Jesus really represents the, the truth about the nature and consequences of sin as per his death, he demonstrated it. See, in in God's universe, and and I take this from the book of Job. In the book of Job, when there's a question about someone or a question about God, the solution is not to rake through the past evidence and forensic evidence and try to bring up the forensic evidence for the case. It's empirical evidence and empirical evidence alone that's, that determines the truth of something. And so Job has to be tested empirically in order for the claims that Satan made to be shown to be false. And the claims he made about God shown to be false. And it's in that testing of Job that God is vindicated and Job is vindicated. So if there's a question about the nature and consequences of sin and the question about who causes death or what causes death, someone has to demonstrate someone has to go through that experience because everything in eternity is experiential so someone has to go through that experience and come out the other side saying this is what I went through this is what I experienced and of course the whole universe witnesses this at the cross they see satan trying to crush out the life of christ they see they see his agony because of sin, they see his emotional agony, they see blood, bloody sweat coming from his brow in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is hematophidrosis, a medical term for severe depression that causes bleeding in the brain. I had a student with that one time who wrote a paper on the death of Jesus because he wanted to identify with what he went through with what Jesus did. It's just, it was a powerful paper. So so that's what a little bit of what we're dealing with here and and we're gonna unpack that more fully in in Romans. Romans makes it clear. Uh, Jean, maybe just I know you're going to unpack it more is so much is made of the blood, and often the blood is immediately compared with sacrifice your same blood. It's kind of the metaphor of what happens because of sin. What we pointed out when we dealt with the blood is that when the Gospels deal with the blood of Jesus, they don't deal with the scourging, the crown of thorns, or the nails in his hands. They don't touch on that at all. It is the two, and I'm sure they're not excluding those things, those things are caused directly by a legal preoccupation with things. (laughs) What led the Jews to crucify Jesus is their legal uh, preoccupation of things. But the, the frame of Jesus' death that the gospel writers highlight is the bloody sweat from his brow in Gethsemane and the blood and water that gushes from his side when they pierce him, indicating he died of a broken heart. So you have this emotional agony being the actual root of the final destruction. And and why does Jesus, when he talks about throwing people out into outer darkness, he says, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the emotional agony is what destroys the wicked. That's what I believe. And and by the way, Ellen White endorses that. If you want to read an interesting article by her, uh, Signs of the Times, April 14, 1898. Um, it's It's a powerful article in which she likens the death of Jesus to the death of the wicked. And she says that everybody, whether saved or lost, has to go through that emotional agony. They either go through the emotional agony at the foot of the cross when they see Jesus doing for them what, to save them from what they would go through if they continue on in in a sinful life. Or at the end of the day, if they resist that, they go through that emotional agony from rebellion. And that's what takes she doesn't bring that in there, but I think it certainly fits. I think this whole thing is extremely experiential. So let's go to the Septuagint, because the Septuagint highlights some things. It does some things differently, and it highlights some things that are very crucial to our understanding of God. And I'm, I'm not, we're not going to read this whole thing. I want you to look at the underlying places, because that's where it's crucial. Instead of we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, he bears our sins and has pained for us. And then he was wounded on account of our sins. That's the because of or by our sins. And then the final line, and the Lord gave him up for our sins. Now, this is Brenton's, uh, Brenton's view. My view, looking at the Greek, is he gave him up to our sins. It can be translated the same way. And it's, it's very possible that the, the, the Septuagint is following, the Septuagint, Septuagint translators are following a different forlaga. And the forlaga, that is a source, Hebrew source, has a preposition lamed at the beginning of sins, uh, meaning you can translate either four or two, either one works. Then look down to the next underlying, underlying place. Uh, because of the iniquities of my people, he was led to death. It, It could be by in the Hebrew, the iniquities of my people. Remember that the preposition can be translated either because of or by. And then the next, the last paragraph, the last line, he shall bear their sins. So this is clearly about sin bearing. And then the last paragraph because his soul was delivered to death. Because his soul was delivered to death. And then the last line was delivered because of their iniquities. Now this word is not anywhere in the Masoretic texts. But it's in the Septuagint. And the verb that is used three times for the, at the end of the first paragraph, the Lord gave him up for our sins. And then the last paragraph twice because his soul was delivered to death and he was delivered uh, because of their iniquities or by their iniquities. The word there is paradidomi, which means to give up or to hand over. I did my master's thesis on the righteousness of God in Paul and I explored the wrath of God because it's parallel to the righteousness of God in Romans 1. And you know in Romans 1 that God's wrath is, and we we went over this um, months and months ago, I think over a year ago, that the wrath of God is is identified by God giving up people. And the word there is paradidomy. And when I did my master's thesis, I kept thinking, where does Paul get this? It's like he gets it out of thin air. I mean, the gospel writers use paradidomi to to describe Jesus being handed over to the Romans and, and led to death. Paul isn 't using it that way. If you study it out and all of his usage does, he uses it three times to describe the death of Jesus, no, five times to describe the death of Jesus, that God gave him up for us all and and so on, and he uses this language, and I was like, "Where does he get this usage of paradynamy and then, after I finished my master's thesis, went on, started my doctoral program at one Sabbath afternoon i said i 'm going to study the Septuagint version of isaiah fifty three and and there, was. there it was. <laughs> And I was like, there's where Paul got it. Right there in Isaiah 53. So this is God's wrath. He gives up his son to sin. Sin crushes out his life. And, and the consequences are emotional agony. And I don't think this is, I, I think I've given you too superficial a description of that. When Jesus was on the cross, Ellen White really portrays what he was thinking. And what he was thinking was the bombardment of Satan's accusations against God, because that's what led us into sin. The, the claim that God has, He's angry with you, you'll never see your father's face again, He's, He's so angry with sin and you that, that, you know, this is eternal, and, and God is doing this to you, and, and so on. And everything depends on what Jesus decides is happening to Him. Under the most extreme agony. He has to make that crucial decision. What is happening to me? Is God killing me? Is my father doing this to me? Or is sin doing this to me? And Ellen White says he remembers who his father is. He goes back to his life, all the experiences he's had with him, uh, how he knows him through his word. And he says the only thing Jesus says in reference to his death is, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Not, why are you killing me? So, so that's what we're seeing a window on here in Isaiah 53. Um, now, I want to, just for the record's sake, because this has been done, I'd like you to take out this. There's a ritual. That something lies behind this text that was done in ancient Assyria. And this is Isaiah, who lives during the time period when this is being done. The, in ancient Assyria, if the omens lined up against the king of Assyria to portend that the gods were angry and were going to dispatch him, probably through enemy forces... They would install a substitute king on the throne for 100 days. The substitute king in in the Akkadian is sharpuki. I I love that term because it has such a... Anyway, my students students will even ferret it back to me because it has this something about it that just sounds like substitute king or something. Um, Anyway, they put the substitute king on the throne for a specified number of days as high as 100. And... At the end of the specified dates, meanwhile, the, the real king goes off somewhere and it isn't clear whether he has anything to do with the realm during the, that time period or not, but he's off the throne. During that time period, uh, the substitute king carries out the functions of the king. He makes decisions and he does things. At the end of the 100 days, they take him out. They have a great banquet install, reinstalling the king, the real king. And they take the substitute king and his wife out and execute them. We've had actual texts. In fact, there's a letter to the king by one of the substitute kings. Please, your honor, I would prefer not this assignment. <laughs> At least, as I recall, it was it was a kind of a plea. You know how how can I be worthy of this <laughs> or something to that effect? No, days like 100 days at the most, 40 days. So we're going to run through this ritual. First, there's an eclipse. eclipse was often the portent that really clinched this. The prophetess may predict that a certain personal name will reign. The order is given by the real king to enthrone the substitute king. The substitute king ascends to the throne. The substitute king reigns for X days, 100 in one case. The real king is to remain on guard and under strong protection. Apotropaic rituals, penitential psalms, and rites against malaria and pestilence are to be performed for the life of the real king. Apotropaic means uh, protective, uh, something that helps protect you. Communication with the real king takes place regarding the substitute king. While the substitute king reigns, the real king was to avoid action regarding the royal matters. In one case, the real king went by the name Farmer. This is all works out legally, you understand. If you give the gods legally what they want, we we executed the king. You know, doesn't matter whether it was that king or this king; it was the king. And and if if he bears the wrong name, then you can't touch him. He's no longer the king. The signs, uh, celestial, terrestrial, of the or of malformed births were recited before Shamash. The signs are read to to the substitute king several times. The substitute king is made to recite omen litanies before Shamash. The signs or evil omens are transferred to the substitute king in front of Shamash. Now, Shamash is the sun god. He is the god of justice. He is the god of legal affairs. The substitute king takes the signs on himself. The signs are bound in the hem of the substitute king's garment. The substitute king and queen are treated with wine, washed with water, and anointed with oil. The substitute king and queen are made to eat cooking birds. Both the substitute king and queen are put to death. They die for the real king's reprieve. A tomb is made and a burial chamber is prepared. The substitute king is purged. Censor of pine essence is set up. A meal is served and libation is poured. And I have asterisks here for these last three because we're not certain where they took place. The substitute king is decorated, treated, displayed, buried, and wailed over. The substitute king and presumably queen are buried in the tomb. A burnt offering is made. All portent, portents are canceled. Numerous apotropaic rituals, bit rim key and bit salama, are performed to perfection. Substitute royal throne, table, weapon, and scepter are burned with fire. The ashes of these implements are buried at their head. Here's John Walton's take on this. And this is the Suffering Servant and the Substitute King, a review of John H. Walton. His thesis is that the motifs of the Substitute King ritual of Mesopotamia provide a background for the theological points of the Four servant Song of Isaiah. However, he admits the servant song does not represent an actual substitute king ritual. That is according to a Syrian model. Now the evidence from parallels, while no king exists in the Isaiah passage itself, enough parallels may be made to suggest that Isaiah adapted the substitute king or adapted substitute king imagery to a different situation. The song begins with the exaltation of the servant, just as Sharpuki was elevated to kingship. The song immediately moves to the portrayal of the servant's previous low state station. In the Sharpuki text, the substitute king is usually someone of low state or someone expendable. He cites three examples, the gardener in the sin, the criminal in Greece, the prisoner of war in Hittite texts. Here in Isaiah, there's is a quote, the fact that the servant is described as despised and perhaps physically impaired or abused suggests that he is also considered dispensable, which has enormous implications on Jesus if you're going to read that. The servant operates as a substitute just as the sharpuki does. Here Walton does note a difference. While the sharpuki does this in place of the king, the servant does it in place of the people. A servant bears the people's punishment. The sharpuki does this for the king. The servant is buried with both the guilty and the wealthy. The sharpuki dies presumably because the king is implied as guilty by the omens. The sharpuki also is buried in pomp and ceremony. And you need to know that the omens are verdicts, legal verdicts from the gods. So if you had a bad omen that that you were going to suffer some terrible calamity, it meant the gods had judged you in court and rendered you with that verdict of punishment. Number seven, it is Yahweh's will to crush the servant Uh, quote again, it is inferred by the omens that it is Marduk's will to strike the substitute. Actually, I would correct that. It is Marduk's will to strike the original king. I have studied these same texts that he went over. And um, it's Marduk's will to strike the original king. The asham, the guilt offering, serves as a reparation or compensation offering that appeased the deity for acts of sacrilege. This is quoting Walton. This would well be well in line with the clearing of claims that was intended to affect the substitute king ritual. Now, where in Isaiah 53 does it say that Yahweh was appeased by by the suffering servant's death? Does it say anywhere in the text that Yahweh is appeased? He was. It says by. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. This is a suffering servant will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. But is, is Yahweh satisfied by the suffering servant's death? The suffering servant experiences satisfaction in the suffering. That's very different from Yahweh experiencing satisfaction. Yeah, but we we pointed out that that's not causal So, number nine, in 53.10, the king shall see his seed and prolong his days. Likewise, because of his substitution, the real king has prolonged days and sees his seeds. seed. Walton notes the conspicuous ambiguity with regard to whose seed and days are intended. So that's Walton's take. Now, I take him, his view apart. Number one. Points in, This is points in contrast between the suffering servant and the substitute king. What I do is I take the same passage and I do the same analysis that John Walton did. And I come to different conclusions. So number one, the substitute king is exalted before his death. The suffering servant is to be exalted in the future because of his death. The substitute king is executed the cause of the servant's death is variable, but it may result in the transgressions of the people or his own choice in pouring out his soul. So either, either it's the way Jesus says it, I lay down my life, no one takes it from me, or it is sin that crushes his life. I think the both and is, is the case here. It is crucial to identify how the servant dies. Is he beaten to death? Does God, does God crush him to death? Is it sacrificial? And is sham? Does he pour himself out to death? Is his death at the hands of the rebellious people who put him to death as an act of injustice? This lies in contrast to the substitute king who is summarily executed. The substitute king is brought before Shamash and made to bear the legal omens. The servant suffers injustice or a travesty of justice. Thus he suffers outside a human-made legal system. He suffers injustice. They don't even obey their own laws in putting him to death. A substitute king and the queen die for the king's reprieve. The servant is cut off from the land of the living because of the people's rebellion. And I point out that Pidu, which is found in the Assyrian texts is not found in the Hebrew text. Pada is what should be used, but it's not there. So the, you're really, these two texts don't have enough in common to say that they're, they're comparable adequately. If, if they are, if, the, if Isaiah is using this motif, he's doing it to show the differences as much as to do anything. The substitute king, number five, bears the signs. The servant bears our sicknesses and the iniquities of many. Walton sees this as netting the same thing because the term for sin can mean punishment. But why would it include sickness unless he believes that Isaiah is acceding to the generally held view of illness as divine punishment? See, if you if you really believe, and, and this is where the major and minor voice to me are very crucial. The minor voice is God's preferred will it stands outside the general prevailing views of the ancient Near East about sin and suffering. And the reason I call it minor is because it appears less frequently. It's the minor thread in the Old Testament and it becomes the major thread in the New Testament. The major voice usually reflects the ancient Near Eastern viewpoint. So you'll find a lot of passages in the Bible where it sounds like every illness, every disease, every misfortune that you suffer is from God. He's punishing you. That view is throughout the Old Testament. But you find some sharp and clear contrast to that view. In Jeremiah, for example, who says, you know, God isn't the one doing this to you. You're really doing it to yourselves. Or the book of Job. Uh, which really categorically takes that whole doctrine apart and, and denounces it as a fraud. So you do have this. And, and so it's crucial to see that because you can take Babylonian theology and wholesale bring it into the Old Testament, find plenty of support for it, and make your case that the, the Hebrew Bible is just like the Babylonians in their view of God, or the Assyrians in this case. The substitute king, number six, is made to recite omen litanies before Shamash. By contrast, the servant is silent. Part of the substitute king's substitution is to rule as king. His execution would mean nothing without this. Part of the servant's substitution is to grow up without good looks or majesty Walton claims that this aspect of the servant is prior to his substitutionary role and thus parallel to the substitute king's previous lowly state. However, a closer reading of Isaiah 53, 2-5 suggests strongly that the humility and rejection are intimately tied to and are indeed a part of his substitutionary offerings. The substitute king ritual is entirely magical. No magic is found in the four-servant song. Substitution, and by the way, there is a strong correlation Anciently between magic and the legal model. We'll someday tackle that. uh, Number nine, substitution is very clear in the Sharpuki texts. The primary conveyance for substitution in Isaiah fifty three is the debate pretel a preti of Isaiah fifty three five. In exchange for his stripes we are healed. However, the Septuagint renders this line as causal. by his stripes we are healed. The concept of transfer or bearing of sin is also a possible vehicle for substitution, especially if the word sin is rendered as punishment. However, the vehicles for substitution seem to make it a loose metaphor rather than the prominent act of equivalence, it seems to be in the Mesopotamian text. And one thing I need to state here is that in, in Babylonian texts, you have many different words for substitute. Substitution is a principle that underlines almost every facet of Babylonian life, spiritually, fi- uh, religiously, uh, legally, medically, politically. I mean, you can find substitution everywhere you look. All the in- great institutions of Babylon have substitution. But in the Bible, there's not a single noun for substitute. It's definitely downplayed. And remember the text we looked at last week, Isaiah 55. Come and buy from me without a price. That word price is rooted in substitution, without an exchange. So the Bible tends to downplay substitution, but it is there. It's just not used in the sense that we have projected back into Scripture. Number 10. Walton claims that the guild offering appeased God's wrath, yet there is no real evidence for appeasement as part of the atonement in the Old Testament, including the ritual text. The word kippur does not mean to appease in the constructions in Leviticus. In fact, the, the author of Leviticus deliberately constructed the text awkwardly to avoid appeasement. Appeasement comes from the Latin Vulgate. It doesn't come from the Septuagint, which followed the Hebrew. It comes from the Latin Vulgate. This includes the guilt-offering laws. In addition, no mention of divine anger is used in the Four servant Song. The use of omens in Mesopotamia were predicted or predicated on the belief that they contained the verdicts of the gods. If the gods were angry with the king, they would bring down his downfall and or his destruction. An eclipse was deemed a certain forecaster of divine wrath against the king. By contrast, Yahweh, the Old Testament God, did not manifest displeasure in this way. You didn't have omen reading. It was all built in that belief of divine anger. By contrast, Yahweh, the Old Testament God, did not manifest pleasure in this way, but rather through certain actions from time to time and warnings of prophets. And then what turns away Yahweh's anger is repentance and change of action, not sacrifice. Number eleven. As a correction to Walton's statement, it is inferred from the Omens that it was Marduk's will to strike the substitute. It is important to state that it is not Marduk's will to strike the substitute, but to strike the king. The nation provides the substitute, anticipating that gods will accept him instead of the real king. This is in contrast to the fourth servant song, where it states that Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Yahweh obviously is in favor of substituting the servant for the nation of Israel. And Yahweh offers the servant. Number 12, is the suffering servant really a substitute king for the per- people? There is no intimation in the fourth servant song that he rules over the people before his death. While royal imagery is applied to the servant throughout the book of Isaiah, as duly noted by Walton, in that the servant does kingly acts, it nowhere speaks of the servant as Israel's ruler, nor does it speak of his reign. This is something stressed. In the Sharpuki text, nevertheless, a strong case can be made for servant as a royal figure if one considers that Kirta, King Kirta, is called servant of Ale. In this case, my servant Job would have to be a royal figure. Yet not other non-kings are called my servants, such as Abraham and Isaiah, and, the serv- and servant of God, such as Daniel. Thus, we cannot assume that the suffering servant is king. This is not to reject this mes- passage as messianic. The anointed one did not rule, indeed will never rule, after the manner of earthly kings. Even if the servant is a king, his kingship is not emphasized as the basis for a substitution. The basis for a substitution seems to be the seed who will be blessed by long days and the many who the servant will make righteous. Further note. Three words may be considered leading words. That's the meaning of that German word there. In the fourth servant song, many, to lift up or to bear. That's a crucial one. That's almost a motif uh, in the text. And to see. The servant is lifted up and bears the sins of many. What we see of him leads to rejection. What he sees is those who will accept his death. These words seem to form the core of the text. Yet there is another set of words, not identical to one another but related, that form a central motif. The words are to have success or insight, to know, to be, to know or to be known, to have understanding, to reveal, see light, knowledge. When put with the auxiliary words such as the light word or the leading word to see, and related words like believe. It seems clear that the central message is being conveyed regarding the servant, who he really is, and what he really accomplishes. And it has to do with knowledge. It has to do with explaining the truth, demonstrating the truth. Questions? Observations? We don't have much time. Gene, when I'm trying to put some things together in my mind from this past, it seems like this is you taking a different Instead of where you have the appeasement and an appeasing God, an angry God, or you've taken the other a lot of my medical friends who would spend much time arguing about where they would say, You didn't you didn't need us he didn't need a death, you just needed an example. Um, or just somewhere between where this example with sin it's a demonstration even the the way you were saying the way they logic think or they they needed a demonstration. This is once and for all. This is what sin does. That's that's exactly where I'm going, and and to me it's crucial. Um, if if let's put this in the medical world, since you you mentioned medical student. If you if you were a doctor and you knew that every patient that came to you thought you would kill them if you found they had sin. And that they had to bring you an offering or something to make you, uh, not, make you forgive them. And that's really all they cared about. It didn't matter that it might have cancer that was killing them. How would you go about convincing them that it isn't you who's gonna kill them, it's what they have inside of them that's gonna kill them? That's the issue. And, And the Babylonian method of healing was very substitutionary and very legal. They would take a figurine when a patient was sick. They would take a figurine. And that figurine was called a legal term, one for the other. Dananu, which was related to Dinu, which was judgment. And it was just a totally legal term. They would take that and they would place it body part to body part on the person so that he could absorb the the, the illness now the absorbing of the illness is something similar to what we see in the suffering servant here. If you're going to use a Babylonian model, that would be the logical model to use, but it falls far short. Because then they would take this substitute, this figurine, and they would take it out and they would throw it to the dogs to consume, or they would kill it, I mean, not kill it, but destroy it. Or just simply throw it away. And that's not what Jesus did. He did bear our sins but not in a legal sense, in a very real experiential sense that gave empirical evidence to the fact that sin is what destroys us, not God. You see, if we once believed that, if we once really grasped that truth, we would trust God and want to get rid of sin. Because we would we, fear sin and not God. This may be another one of those questions for...
1: If blood, and tone, uh, if blood and death are crucial by our standard, band standards, for atonement, what would atonement be like without blood and death in the eyes of God? Yeah. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. OK,
0: here's, here's what it would mean. If Jesus never died, and he simply came to win us back, to love and trust him. We would have no way to explain the problem of evil and the problem of suffering on our planet. And we would not trust him, and he wouldn't be able to win us back. That's number one. And number two, if he, if he tried to win us back without his death... Without that graphic representation, sin is what's killing you. We, w- we might say, okay, God, we're bored. Yeah, fine. But we're going to do whatever we want, whatever we please. We're going to destroy our bodies. We're going to, you know, mess up our minds. We're going to do it all because it isn't what the problem is. You know, we're in good terms with you and that's all that matters. That's That's why it's crucial that this take place. Okay, let's throw our heads. Father, we thank you that you were willing not to make us believe you on the basis of your claims, but on the basis of the most costly evidence you could have provided to warn us that sin does lead to death, but to reassure us that you are in the business of saving lives, not in the business of destroying them. I pray that we might have this clear in our minds so that we trust you and fear sin and not fear you and trust sin. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Jesus' name. Amen.